We are on the third week of what I think will probably be a 26-week series. So I might still have brown hair by the time we've finished, or I might have lost it, or it's gone grey. If you want a title for this morning's message, it's Touring the Stage of Wonders. And we're going to be spending our time in chapter 1 from verse 3 through to the end of verse 14. This is, as we said last week, a a section which is one long celebratory sentence. In the Greek, there's no full stop, no commas. He is just he is just radically raving about how good God is in this text, in this one long sentence. It's called the Baraka. And last week, we introduced it. We spent some time looking at God's sovereign choice. But this week, we're going to look at it in its entirety. We are going to enjoy it as one long celebratory sentence. And then we're going to seek to understand what Paul is so busy raving on about. So let's read from verse 3 and enjoy this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word, what an incredible sentence this is. Lord, as your son, the Apostle Paul, raves about how incredible your spiritual blessings are, would, would we rave about how incredible your spiritual blessings are today? Lord, blow our minds, humble us, and amaze us. Lord, give us joy as we examine what you have lavished upon us in your grace. Lord, would you lavish your grace upon us again today? Lord, I thank you in advance because I know you will because that's what you're like. Help me, Lord. Amen. It was nearly 10 years ago now that I had my first and only operation. I was living in in the United States of America at the time in Gaithersburg, and I had an appendix. 
that was causing me some issues, and so it clearly had to come out. For a while, my wife and I thought I'd pulled a stomach muscle. We didn't know really how, but I did have a bit of a cough. We thought that maybe I'd pulled a stomach muscle, and so I was trying to apply deep heat for it to about a week. It didn't seem to be helping very much, and we finally realized that although my skin is on fire, it seems to be a little bit more internal. And as I was walking around a lake, I, uh, I, I collapsed, they rushed me to hospital, and my appendix had actually burst and it started to poison my body and so on and so forth. And it wasn't ideal. In fact, the, the only words I can hear as they said, get the morphine, were, love, he may die, as he's communicating to my wife at that time, one year. It was slightly traumatic. But in God's grace, he uh, saved my life. He, uh, I, I was made well through the gift of the surgeon and through many, many, many different medicines. And... The problem was then, after recovering from my appendix, I had to succumb to three weeks of American TV. <laughs> now, I'm not sure what is worse, the appendicitis or the American TV. I mean, for, I know we have some Americans with us this morning, but you need to understand, your TV sucks. There is an issue with American TV, and I think it's not because of the TV, it's because of the content. There is just stuff on there that you think, what is that? So for three weeks, I was introduced to NASCAR, and you're like... Um, it, it appears that cars are just driving round in a circle. How 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 nice! And so for for hours you would watch cars driving round in a circle, and you think that's that's really quite meaningful. And then you watch American football, and you think, what are these girly boys? Helmets, pads. Do they have they never heard of rugby? You know what what is up with this? And they've got they've all got their nice little latex on it. Does my bum look big in this? And you're just like, what is up? With American football, it just sucks. But the saving grace of American TV was a game show by the name of The Price is Right. <laughs> Do you have that in Australia? That is a quality game show. I loved The Price is Right. So every day, one o'clock, I was all excited. Okay, love, join me. The Price is Right is coming on. And I just thought, this is an amazing show. So the appendicitis became worth it because of the 1 p.m. Price is Right experience. For those of you that have never seen it, let me explain just briefly how it, how it functions, how it works. Basically, there is a, a, you, the, the game starts when they say, come on down to people in the audience, which is so American, isn't it? I love that. If you said in Britain, come on down, they'd go, oh, I don't think I like that. But, but in America, they'd yes, they're all coming down. Just think, that is so cool. And so you get the different people coming down. And then they have to guess the price of an object, like, oh, it's an iron. Wow. And they guess the price of the, op of the object. And if they win, they get through to a round. And if they win the round, they get through to the final. And the final is only two people. And it's at that point that the prizes are incredible. They're winning like a speedboat and a new house and a holiday. And there's just so many great prizes on offer in the American version that uh, I really enjoyed it. But the highlight is right at the end of the show, when the individual has won the prizes, the host would run on stage and he would want to show them around the prizes. And so he'd say, check this out. You've won a speedboat. This is amazing that you've got this. And look at over here. You've got a fridge a freezer. Yes, a real fridge freezer. And look, it's a new house. And look, it's a new hairdo. And he would show them around all the different prizes. And he would just razz and be amazed at, look at all these prizes that you have won. Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, that in many ways is what Paul is doing. That final scene of The Price is Right, as a host begins to show them around incredible prizes, that's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1. He wants us to see, do you realize, as he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
He wants you to realize this stage of wonders is dripping with prizes. It's dripping with blessings which Jesus Christ has earned for you. Now, make no mistake. These prizes you didn't earn. Over 10 times in this short text, it uses the phrase, in Christ, in Him, as we understand that you haven't earned these things. Jesus Christ earned these prizes for you. In His death and resurrection, He has lavished blessings upon you. But Paul, nonetheless, wants us to realize, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have now been invited onto a stage by the Apostle Paul to be shown around incredible blessings that are yours in His name. See, the Apostle Paul isn't some stuffy apostle that sits to the side and ticks boxes. He is amazed. He is staggered at what these Ephesians and what he himself has been blessed with in Christ. And so today, what he's doing through this text is he's saying, all right, you, Sovereign Grace Church, get up them stairs and let me begin to show you around these prizes that have been earned for you in Jesus Christ but now they're yours. And there's not one, there's not two, three, four. There's, there's at least five blessings, at least five prizes that he wants to show you around so that you may be humbled, so that you may be amazed, and so that you may be freshly assured as you examine the glories of what it is to truly be saved. And so this morning, we're going to take his tour. We're going to let him show us around the stage of wonders so that we may be excited and so that we may be amazed. Now, last week, we let the Apostle Paul show us around the first of those prizes, and it's the prize of sovereign grace. It's the prize that the fundamental, ultimate reason why you're here is because before the foundation of the world was even in place, he chose you. Yeah, sure, you chose him. That was an active point in time where you deliberately put your faith in Jesus Christ or repented of your sin. That's how one gets saved. But if you do that, then you need to understand that as you do that, as you look back, you will see chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what we read in verse 4. For even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. As the Apostle Paul examines the stage and begins to tour us around the stage, having made the point that you have had blessings lavished upon you, he brings you up and he shows you the first one. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Check it out. This is you. This is your story. But then he moves on. He moves on in verse 7 to show us around the prize and blessing of redemption. In verse 7, it simply says this, In him we have redemption through his blood. Folks, you've been redeemed. You've not only been chosen, you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. It's a word that we so often skip over and we think, I'm not even quite sure what that means. So let's pause on it because when you realize what it means, I think it's to be staggered at what it means. See, the term redemption has its roots in the ancient marketplace. In the Roman Empire at that time, the, the big business of the day would take place in the marketplace. So if you want to buy food, if you wanted to buy clothes or anything like that, you wouldn't hop up to Westfield. You would hop up to the ancient marketplace, and that's where you would buy everything. And the big business of the day was, was selling slaves, buying and selling slaves. In the Roman Empire at this time, there were over 6 million slaves. That's a lot of slaves going on. And so there would be a big slave culture. 
And part of the reason why that took place is because there was also a lot of poverty. There was no welfare state, no pensions. If you were in trouble, if your crops failed, you were in trouble. You were going to need help. And so what would you have done? You couldn't go to the tax office and say, look, we're just in dire straits, we need help. You couldn't look for a bank loan. Now, what you did is you sold yourself into slavery. So for me as a father, I would sell myself into slavery. That man would buy me, and with that, I would give my wife and the children the money. But it does now mean I'm a slave. Well, there'd only be one way then to be bought back, and it would be through the payment of a ransom. If you paid the ransom figure, at some point in the time, you could pay that ransom figure to the owner, and I could be released back again. The slave could once again become free. Well, this term, redemption, has at roots that marketplace scene, and it is this scene that Paul wants to take us around as he wants us to understand the gift of redemption. See, folks, you were slaves to sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says, we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by then, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. You were buried. You were a slave to your sin, to its power, to its consequences, to its guilt. You know, you... We saw this week the Chilean miners and how they all got saved. They couldn't save themselves, right? They weren't going to be able to dig themselves out. They needed a savior, a rescuer to come after them. So did we. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were slaves to sins, the Bible tells us, time and time again. God could have left us there, and yet he didn't. According to the incredible riches of his grace, he didn't just abandon us. He came after us. Just like the Chilean miners were rescued through individuals drilling through the rock to save them, Jesus Christ, full of grace and full of truth, did the same for us. He got the drill bit of the cross out, and He died in our place so that we could be rescued. He died as our ransom. Remember that verse? He died as came for a ransom for many. That's what he was doing. He was paying the price so that we could be fully and incredibly released from slavery to sin's guilt, to sin's power and penalty. Do you realize that? Do you realize that you are free? Sin no longer has dominion over you. If you believe it does, then you are believing a lie because Jesus Christ paid the price in full. It'd be like the Chilean miners coming out of the mine And they're walking around saying, I don't feel very free. I don't feel very free. You know what? I don't care what you feel like. The reality is you are free. Believe it. It's the same with redemption. You are slaves to your sin, to its guilt, to its power and penalty. But if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are now out of the mind. You are free. You are free of sin's power, of its penalty, and indeed its guilt. That's what redemption is all about. You can see then why Paul was so excited about it, because he realized that was not our story. But now through Jesus, it is in Christ. We're completely and utterly free. You know, I heard a story a while back which really just brought to life for me, in my mind, this idea of redemption, really what has taken place. And it reads as follows. In a city on the shore of a great lake, 
lived a small boy. His name was John, and he seriously loved both the water and sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months making a beautiful model boat, which he began to sail at the water's edge. One day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out into the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day, as he was walking through town, he saw his beautiful boat in a store window. He approached the owner and announced his ownership, only to be told that it was not his, for the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. And so the lad set himself to work, doing anything and everything, until finally he returned to the store with the money. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, You are twice mine now, because I made you, And because I brought you back, God made you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He he made you. And yet you, like me, ran away from God. You, like me, rejected God. We became enemies of God in our sin. But on the cross, he paid the ransom to buy you back again. So you're twice now his. Isn't that wonderful? You have been bought back. You have been purchased with a ransom price, and now you indeed are His. You're not only chosen before the foundation of the world, you're also redeemed. He's brought you back again. But even that is not all. In verse 7b then, Paul goes on to help us see that we've also been forgiven. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Don't you love that phrase? The riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. What do you think God's like? You think He's a stingy guy who's not interested? Check out these words. The riches of His grace. He is wealthy in His grace. And what does He do with it? He lavishes it upon us. He's not like a father that says, okay, I've got a bag of sweets, and well, you can have half, and you can have half. No, He's taking the bag of sweets and saying, here, have it lavishing it upon His people, lavishing upon those He loves. And a part of that lavishing grace, He's forgiven us. Do you realize if you're redeemed, you are completely and totally and utterly forgiven? Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Romans 3, we learn that there is no one righteous, not even one For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us all. But then through Christ, Romans 4 verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You know, forgiveness in Jesus Christ is totally undeserved, but it is nonetheless totally available and totally complete in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? You are completely and utterly forgiven of your sin, past present and future. If you are a Christian, then He has dealt with it in full on the cross. It's scandalous grace, but it's true. You know, maybe you're struggling with a past sin. Maybe it's something that you have confessed to the Lord time and time and time again, and yet whenever you start to sing to the Lord or things take place, it's as if it's right there with you again. It's a shackle around your foot and 
you're just very aware of this sin. And even though you've asked for forgiveness, you, you don't feel that forgiveness. You, you're struggling to know where, where you're at with it. Maybe it's even something that's taken place this week in your lives. And you've come here this morning particularly burdened with your sin, aware of what am I going to do with this. And you've confessed it to the Lord, but you're still not sure how it's going to function and how it's going to play out. You know what, my friends? Here's the good news. If you have confessed it to the Lord and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're totally and utterly forgiven. It's been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds he remembers no more. He has paid for your sin in full. He has paid for the guilt of that sin. He has paid for the penalty of that sin. So what are you doing still concerned about it? It's dealt with in full. Corrie ten Boom once said, you know what? One of the challenges with people is even though they're forgiven of their sin, they keep digging it up. And she said, you know what? Being removed as far as the east is the, is the west is like God taking all our sin, throwing it into a bottomless lake. But then it is so important that we then erect a sign that says no fishing. Don't you love that? That is what we must do. It has been removed as far as the east is from the west. You are completely and totally and utterly forgiven. So when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, here's what you do. Upward you look and see him there, who made an end of all your sin. Jesus Christ paid for it in full. He paid for its consequence. He paid for its guilt. It is finished. You're forgiven. It has completely and utterly gone. Paul himself is the self-confessed chief of sinners. He was a murderer of Christians. When you see him in the book of Acts, as you engage with him, he is going around Christians' houses to pull them out of their houses, to arrest them, to hopefully put them to death. But here in Ephesians 1, knowing that Jesus Christ has paid for his sin in full, he's like a kid on heat, isn't he? He's just so amazed. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Check it out. Redeemed. You've been redeemed. You've been completely set free. And you've been forgiven. Guys, check this out. I, the chief of sinners, one who used to murder Christians, have now been forgiven in full. Paul wants to... He wants you to know his excitement for this topic, but he wants you to know this excitement for this topic so that you may realize this is your story too. You too have been completely and utterly forgiven by his grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Total forgiveness, Kent Hughes writes, is something to celebrate. It is beyond anything positive thinking, therapy, or hypnosis can provide. It is complete extending to the conscious and unconscious sins in our lives because God knows all things and because Jesus' blood is infinite. I remember my first experience of God's forgiveness and how His Holy Spirit gave me the assurance that my sins were totally forgiven. The burden was so consciously lifted that I felt as if I could float and anyone can be forgiven no matter what their sin is, whether they are the commander of Auschwitz or the most immoral person in the world, total forgiveness is completely possible through Jesus Christ. It's scandalous grace, but it is the story of Ephesians 1. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, He has paid for our sin in full. You've not only been redeemed, you've also been forgiven. And you know what you've also been, as He continues to show us around the stage? You've also been adopted. Check out verse 5. This is your story. In love, he 
predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, to be chosen is amazing. To be redeemed, that's staggering that he would set us free from slavery in that way. To be forgiven, that's scandalous. To be completely cleansed and washed clean of all our sin. But to also know then that he's not only just done those things and then said, okay, guys, I've given you a fair chance, off you go, but brought us into his own family. That's amazing grace. A people that were once his enemies, the Bible says, are now seated at his table. He cares for us. You want to know how God thinks about you? He thinks about you as his children. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where where does my help come from? For a Christian, the answer is obvious. It comes from my Father, one who is watching over my coming and going, one who is a shade at my right hand, one who will help me, one who will hem me in, both behind and before, one who will watch over my life both now and forevermore. You have a Father who's watching over you. He's adopted you into his family. He's caring for you as a great father does for a child. That is your story. Once his enemies, but now seated at his table. You know, folks, to really understand these things, and I think to really know them, and know them not only in our heads, but our heart, to know honestly that you've been forgiven and chosen and redeemed and adopted, to really know those things in our hearts, I think is to be absolutely overwhelmed with the love of God towards you to really know them and grasp them and let them function in our lives, I think is to truly understand God's incredible love for you. And yet one of the greatest concerns that I often have as a pastor is how many people I meet that in some way feel that God is maybe just tolerating them. That they're just somehow, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in the church and there's a lot of great folk, but I, I'm a bit of a black sheep. You know, Dave, if you just knew my past, if you knew things that had happened in my life, you would understand why I always need to sit to the side because there are so many great folk in this church and I don't fully fit. And then when you examine them and you talk to them about, how do you think God feels about you? They really feel that, you know, I understand that God chose me. I don't understand why, but I still think I'm a black sheep. And if God had known truly what I would have done in my life, Maybe he wouldn't have even chosen me. I I don't know. There are all too many people that I meet that feel in some way God is tolerating them. And to feel tolerated is a horrible feeling, isn't it? To feel the black sheep, to feel like you don't fit. That is, it's horrible. I remember at secondary school, I used to feel regularly tolerated in, in rugby. Because what happened, unfortunately for myself, is in primary school I used to play a lot of rugby, like everybody else. In, tr- in secondary school, everybody else kept growing, uh, and unfortunately, I remained the same. So it became awkward, because everybody was huge, and I was clearly very small. And so, you know, you know how you're sort of lining up on, at the wall, and it's, it's time to get picked for the team? Always awkward. So you stand on the wall, and, you know, you're there to the end. And <laughs> yes, yeah. And, and then by the end, they're just like, you're not, ev- you're not even referred to as a name. It's just like, you two go there, and you two go there, and you're like, that'll be me. So and I go into the team. And I remember one occasion playing rugby, 
which is just always ingrained on my mind. Uh, I got picked. We, off we, we start the game. It's going well. I'm the winger, you know, because that just means I can hide and just keep out of the way. But unfortunately, on this occasion, I was hiding so well that the guy kicked the ball over to me, and I, and I was the only one within like a year of the ball. So I was aware I've, I'm going to have to do something with this ball. So I ran up to the ball. I grabbed the ball and I ran like the wind to go up to the other line. I am running like I have never run before. It is a scared run, but it is a run nonetheless. I am, I am running as fast as I can towards the opposite end to touch that ball down and then go crazy. And, and it was going very, very well until I noticed out of the corner of my eye, there is somebody very large, clearly a man mountain running towards me. Now, now, at 14, everybody else is growing up, but this guy had clearly meet, reached middle age. You know, there's always one person in your class with a beard down to here, you know, and, and while you are grooming your one chest hair that you're trying to do everything, he is head to toe in here, and you're like, how did he do that? And he's got muscles coming out, and I'm thinking, I'm dead. I, I, I'm dead. This is, this is, Jesus, take me. And I'm running as fast as I can. I see this man mountain running towards me, and just as he was about to hit me, I closed my eyes. And as I closed my eyes, I had the most strange sensation. It felt as if I was being carried. And, and, it, and, it, and it felt as if I was now moving backwards. It was, it was the most bizarre, strange sensation. One minute I'm running full speed this way. Now I feel like I'm being carried backwards. And I opened my eye and found this was not a sensation. This was a reality. This guy, as I run this way, this guy, as I have launched myself, has just picked me and the ball up, and now he is running back with me. <laughs> it was very awkward. He ran nearly the full length of the pitch with me in his arms, <laughs> holding the ball. We get to my own end with me holding the ball. He throws me on the floor. They score a try. <laughs> this is really true as well. Uh, and, I, and I picked my head up, and all I can see is his looking at me smiling. The opposite team are going crazy. They clearly think it's hilarious. And my team, almost all of them, are just there standing at the side going. <laughs> I felt tolerated. And I don't blame them. But I felt tolerated. The game kicked off again, and that ball wasn't coming towards me, let you know. And I just felt like an idiot. And although I'd been picked for the team, I, I didn't really feel like I'd fitted in. I felt like the black sheep. I felt like I need to keep out the way because I don't really fit. Christians can feel like that too. You can feel like, I know I got picked for the team, but I think I only got picked at the end because, oh, okay, I'll take you too, and I'll take you too. And you can feel tolerated that in some way because of things you've done in the past in particular, because of balls that you've dropped in your past, that God is now just tolerating you. And if other people knew, they would just be there at the sideline, shaking their head. Folks, you need to know that God is not just tolerating you. In fact, he's not tolerating you in any way. You know how he feels about you? He passionately and enthusiastically loves you. And here's how I know. Because before there was even time, knowing exactly what would take place in your life, he chose you. At the right time then, he redeemed you. He paid the price so that you, personally by name, 
could be removed from the slavery to sin and then brought into his kingdom. He forgave you. He washed you clean of all of your sin. And then he didn't just stand you outside the door tolerating you. He said, no, son, daughter, come in. Sit at my table. You now carry my surname. Your heirs with my son, Jesus Christ. Sit at the table. I am now your father. You want to know how God thinks about you? He passionately and enthusiastic loves you. And nowhere do you see that more clearly, not only than as you examine the prizes, but as you realize, although all those blessings are free to you, they weren't free to him. They cost him the life of his only begotten son. He's not tolerating you. He loved you enough to send his son to the cross so that you may have life and life in abundance. You know, I have one son. His name is Joshua David Taylor, and he, he brings his dad much joy, as do his sisters. There's one of them. And as do the younger sister, Lydia. And I remember with Josh, when he was young, when he got to two and a half years old, it was quickly apparent that he's just not able to talk. He wasn't saying anything. And so apart from the occasional, eh, or eh, and he's pointing at things, he, he wouldn't say anything else. And so he had to go through a series of tests to work out what is the challenge with him and what's taking place. It was in that season that we realized he had two holes in his heart that would need to be operated on, which we had just last year. And we also became aware that he had a submucous cleft palate, which meant in his mouth, instead of the muscles running, running that way, like everybody else, they ran that way. And so he just physically wasn't able to actually say anything. And so they told us when he was two and a half that we'd need to take him in for an operation, which would potentially be a series of operations, which it was. And I remember when he was three, taking him in for that first operation, and it was difficult. He was so small. He couldn't talk. He would just use sign language to communicate to Emma and I. But we took him in nonetheless, and uh, I got the responsibility to stay in with him. So we had to go in the one day. The operation would be on the next day. And and every time we, we got him in there and we'd lie on the bed and we'd play games and he would be quite fun until he would see the doctors and the nurses. And then he'd be like, you know, Dad, what's going on? And he would, he would always say, he would do that, so just talking. And he would always say, mm, just talking. And he'd say, yeah, they're just talking. They just come to take your temperature and they're hanging out with you and they're having fun. And then you'd be all right for a while and then a few hours later they'd come around again and he'd look at me and go, yes, they're just talking, son. And the next day came and the, um, the anaesthetist came down in the morning and just wanted to chat with him. So Josh was just talking again. Yeah, just talking, son. And then that afternoon, they came again. And Josh looked at me and he said, just talking? And I said, son, not, not this time. They're, they're not just talking. It's time for your operation. And he was crying. I was crying. And we sat and we, we went to the theater in Britain, you have to actually go into the theatre with the child. So I went into the theatre, and they began to put the mask on his face and put the stuff in his arms, and he is crying his eyes out. And he is looking at me with his three-year-old eyes as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? And I held him there. I kissed him. And the Lord in grace healed him through that process of the surgeon over several different times. But I remember that first time and all the emotions relating into that. And I'll never forget, having dropped him off at the theater, walking away from the theater, and just being aware, as I walked away from the theater that day, Lord, if, 
if I love my son this much, how much more must you love your son? If me and my imperfections and my sin so love my son, how much more must you love your son? And yet, Lord, you so love the world that you would give your only begotten son so that people like me would have life. You want to know how God thinks about you? He loves you. He didn't just put his son through an operation. He sacrificed his son. He wasn't there to kiss his son. He was there to turn his face away from his son and then pour his righteous anger on his son. He wasn't there to comfort. He was there to turn his face away. Why? So that your sin and so that my sin could be paid for in full. Folks, I don't want anyone in this church ever feeling that God is tolerating them. I want people to know in full that, you know what? God is singing over me. And I want them to know that is true because he chose you. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He adopted you and he did all those things at the price of his only begotten son. And such is his love for you. A love that is unchanging. A love that indeed will never change. Do you realize that when you come to sing over him, He's already been singing over you all night. That's how he feels about you. Paul wants us to know those things. He wants us to know and enjoy them and to understand the glories of these prizes. But there's one more. There's one other thing that he also wants us to know, and it's a future prize. See, so far Paul has taught us around blessings that originate in the past. Election, adoption. Paul has also taught us around blessings that relate to the present. The fact that you've been redeemed that you've been forgiven. But now he turns his attention to the future, a prize to come, heaven. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See, for Christians, death is not the end of life's joys, is it? For Christians, when Jesus Christ returns, it's not the end. It's simply the beginning. For at some point in future history, all of cosmic creation that was created through and for Christ, along with all of the redeemed souls from every tribe, from every language and nation, both past and present, along with all of the angelic host, will all day one be united under Jesus Christ. We will all be there to worship around his throne. And it is that end to which Paul now points us to, a future prize, one to come, a place that can only really be known as home, heaven. See, this isn't it for us, is it? We're not going to be reading in Normanhurst High School for the rest of our days. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> this isn't it. For one day you will be in a place where there will indeed be no more pain. There'll be no more arthritis, no more mental illness, no more heart defects, no more speech disorders, no more cancer, no more AIDS, no more tooth decay, no more heart attacks, no more broken down bodies. There'll be no more sin. You will not be reading in the paper of adultery or rape or murder, 
or fear or immorality or drunkenness or crime or war or abuse. There will be a place where there will be no more death, no more decay, no more corruption. But instead, you will find yourself in a place that rings with laughter. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to hear God's laugh coming through the heavenly realms? Have you ever thought what it would be like to sit with Jesus and hear his laugh, to hear his joy? You will be in a place where there will be music and feasting and worship and drinking. It will be a place that will be literally paradise for trees, flowers, glaciers, beaches, seas, mountains, all the things that we see in this world are just a foretaste of what is to come. Every craftsman, every artist, every musician that you have ever seen in this world has been given their gifts by the greatest giver of all. And that greatest giver of all is the one who is the master designer of your home, your eternity to come. Once there, we will be able to run around in new bodies Good news, we won't just become angels or ghosts. That would be very disappointing. If I get a harp and I am two foot tall in a cloud, I will be gutted. But praise God, that will not be the story. We will definitely have bodies. Our souls will be transformed into new bodies and made perfect. We'll still be recognized. We'll carry our name. That is good news for me. I used to lose sleep that I would be spending all eternity looking for Emma and I won't recognize her. Are you Emma? No, are you a man? Good news, you will recognize people. It'll be okay. And you will know their names. And you will have new bodies. You'll be able to run and listen and talk and hear and all the things that you do in your life in glorious perfection in a way you simply never have here. And you won't be alone. There will be people from every tribe and language and nation. There'll be all the saints of the Old Testament. There'll be our ancestors. We'll be able to look Enoch in the eye and say, Enoch, where did you go? We'll be able to talk with these people and enjoy their company for all eternity. But more than anything, more than anything, he will be there. Jesus Christ, the one who made it possible for you to get there, he will be there to welcome you into the home. Wayne Grudem says, when we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had. To know perfect love, peace and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty, when we finally see the Lord face to face, listen to this, our hearts will want for nothing else. When you finally gaze into the eyes of the one who saved you and redeemed you, you won't want anything else. You'll be home. That's what Paul wants us to see. He wants us to be amazed that heaven awaits you. And you know what? If you're ever concerned about whether you're going to make it or not, whether you're actually going to see that home, I have good news for you. If you're a Christian, oh, you will. You'll definitely see it. How do I know? Verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, well, listen, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Don't you love that? 
sealed, guaranteed. They are stationary words that do not change. In the, in the Old Testament times, or particularly in the New Testament times as well, if there was a king or a master, everything they owned would be sealed. So all the cattle would be branded with the king's seal. All his stuff that he owned, he would in some way seal it. He would use a ring and, and wax on different objects and seal it with his seal. That was a guarantee that it was his. He was revealing to everybody, this is mine. Are you going to make it? Yeah. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been sealed by the king. He has put the ring on your life. He has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit who came into your life upon salvation as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That does not read, hopefully, your inheritance. No, guaranteeing it without any doubt. This is not like a, uh, you know, one of your local shop's guarantees where it runs out in six months. This is a guarantee forever. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He is going to remain there until your dying breath, at which point he's going to take you home. You've been sealed with the King. Past, present, and future, he holds you. So even if your hold should ever fail, do not panic. If your hold should ever fail, his wondrous love will never let you go. I remember with my kids when they were little, and I'd hold them. I remember it with you, Amy. And she would hold me, and we'd walk down the stairs. And for some reason, when you're only a year, you're worried that your dad's going to let you go. So she would cling on, and she would leave little marks in my neck. And I would be holding her, and I'd always say to her, love, I've got you. And after a while, she would begin to let go. You know, we can be so busy trying to hold on to God. I've got to hold him. I've got to keep serving him. I've got to do these things. Otherwise, he might let me go. No, his wondrous love will never let you go. He chose you before there was even time. He redeemed you. He forgave you. He adopted you into the family. And now he holds you like a father to a child. And he ain't never letting go. So much to the point where he sealed you with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as a guarantee of your inheritance. It's quite a stage, isn't it, don't you think? And it's your story. It's your incredible story of your lives. You sit there as you watch me, chosen, redeemed, forgiven, adopted. Heaven is your home. It's a guarantee. That is the truth of scandalous grace. And so how do you apply it? What are you meant to do with something like this? You know, do we just go home and go, oh, that's, that's really great news? Well, here's how I think we apply it. As the Apostle Paul tours around the stage of wonders, his excitement is indeed obvious. It's easy to see that he is excited about all these different things as you examine. That's why it's one sentence. He hasn't got time to take a breath. He's so excited about, you're going to have it. Check it out. This is what God has done for you. But what's less obvious are where his eyes are looking. See, if these really were objects on a stage, if forgiveness really was an object and adoption was an object, I think you would find as the Apostle Paul is talking, he keeps bumping into them. And that's because really all this is a sentence of praise. He's not looking at you. He's not even really looking at the objects. He's looking at the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in him in the heavenly realms. He's all pointing to God. 
He's amazed at what God has done for him. And as he begins to communicate, the whole fruit of what he's doing is, God, I'm amazed at you. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. So how do we apply this? Well, I believe we emulate this example in this regard. Having been amazed with the gifts, we focus all attention on and give thanks to the glorious giver, the one who has made all things possible. You and I, we haven't earned these prizes ourselves. Jesus has earned them for you. But you bet your life, they are now in Christ, yours. So let us be a people not only today, but every day, that come back and praise and praise God every day for His glorious gifts. If the band could come back up, there's no, I know I've gone on a bit later, but if we don't sing, I'm just going to burst. <laughs> so uh, let's stand together. I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing a song. Well, Lord, thank you for the joys of our salvation. You have blessed us in ways that are barely fathomable as we consider your goodness and your grace. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. Would there be no one leaving today that feels you are tolerating them, but would all leave understanding you are singing over them. You chose them. You redeemed them. You forgave them. You adopted them. Heaven is their home, and they've been sealed with a deposit guaranteeing their inheritance. Lord, thank you for the joys of Ephesians. Thank you for the joys of Paul's example. And Lord, help us now to emulate his example as we turn back to praise. For you are worthy, Lord. And would our lives scream and sing of a deep gratitude for you. For your glory, Lord.